Well, brothers and sisters, today we are focusing on hope on this first Sunday of Advent. And uh, as I think about the four words of this Advent season, I might perhaps suggest that this first one is the one that we most need right now. Hope is a medicine our world needs. I don't hear, I don't know about you, but I don't hear many hopeful people these days. I hear a lot of despairing people. A lot of despairing what is going on in our world as the pandemic rages on, as divisions of many kinds have intensified. Oh, we are well aware of both the world's problems and the church's imperfections. And if we admit how our own sin contributes to the mess as well. And many of us are filled with grief and pain from trials and losses of many kinds. So how can we right now, amidst all that's going on, proclaim that there is hope? But on the other hand, friends, I ask, what would happen if we didn't proclaim hope? Because if we lose our hope, we will be utterly defeated and drowned in a sea of despair. If we lose our hope, we will lose our ability to live with peace and joy and love. If we lose hope, the trials of this life will overwhelm us. Know this Advent season, we must dare to proclaim and to be bold that we have hope through Jesus Christ. But how can we possibly say that with everything going on? Well, I hope to answer that today as we begin this new sermon series through Advent called Jesus Foreshadowed. Sing the Messiah in Genesis. Now, at the outset of this series, uh, I want to talk about how we see Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, because there is a lot of debate about how to do that. And uh, so I want to tell you, I was talking to my friend uh, Felipe, our friend Felipe, who's a New Testament scholar. And uh, he said to me, Nate, you should do a series on seeing the Messiah in Genesis. And so I said, that's, that's a great idea. We've, I've never done that before. We should do that. Uh, so then I called our friend Manuel, who is an Old Testament scholar. I said, hey, I got this great idea. I'm going to do a series on seeing the Messiah in Genesis. And he said, maybe that's not such a great idea <laughs> after all. And uh, so I was, I was thinking about this, Lord, what do I do? Do I do, do the series? You know, because there's some tricky interpretive things that you, you have to navigate. And so I had an epiphany. I realized I couldn't solve this debate between the Old Testament scholar and the New Testament scholar. I needed a systematic theologian <laughs> to solve this dilemma. So I called our scholar in residence, Kevin Johnson. I said, Kevin, what do I do? How do I solve this? And, he, and to summarize the conversation, he said, Nate, it's okay. You can preach Jesus from the Old Testament. You just have to do it carefully. <laughs> <laughs> and if there's anything wrong with what I preach, you can talk to Kevin after the service. He'll solve everything for you. He's really great at that kind of thing. Uh, but there's, you might be wondering, what is so prob problematic about this? Um, let me, I want to frame for you a couple different approaches to this. Um, I took a seminar in college, and it was talking about this very subject. And the teacher uh, told, told us to, okay, close your eyes, flip open the Bible, point to a passage, now your job is to explain to us how this passage is about Jesus Christ. That was one approach. And I don't think that represents all of my college's thinking, but this was just one seminar, but that was the approach. 
And I think most scholars and commentators I know would say that's, that's inappropriate. Not every line and passage in the Old Testament is, should be about Jesus, okay? But on the, that's one extreme. On the other hand, I've been in seminary classes and around scholars that basically say, you know what, only focus on the original audience of the Old Testament. Only talk about what the intended audience would have understood. Don't even think about Jesus until you get to the New Testament because that's when Jesus shows up. And friends, I need to tell you that both of these approaches are wrong. Both of these approaches are wrong. Why, why would we want to see Jesus in the Old Testament? Why should we think about Jesus when we read the Old Testament? There's many answers we could give, but I'll give you one compelling one. Because Jesus taught us to. Because Jesus taught us to. In John 5, 39, he said to the people, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. In other words, Jesus is saying the Old Testament, the scriptures he's referring to, point to him. They bear witness to him. They are ultimately about him. He said in the Sermon on the Mount that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And remember when, after his resurrection when he was on the Emmaus Road and the two disciples didn't recognize him? And then he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures. And he taught them all the things about the law and Moses and the prophets concerning himself. And so in other words, Jesus taught the church to read the Old Testament in light of himself. And thus then when we get to the New Testament, we should not be surprised that we see all of the apostles and all of the writers of the New Testament making all kinds of wonderful connections to the Old Testament scriptures concerning Jesus. And so, yes, of course, we start with what did the original audience of this text understand? But then, friends, we must also see more. I believe we're supposed to see more than the original audience would have because we live in the era of the Messiah, Jesus, who's been revealed to us, right? So we need to some, avoid the extreme of making every detail about Jesus because we don't want to distort the Word of God. But we need to properly see Jesus in the Old Testament. So how do we do that? Well, you could read several books about this subject, but here's a place to start. If the New Testament makes a connection to Jesus, then of course, that's a legitimate connection to Jesus. And friends, I think you'd be surprised because once you begin there, you will see all of these connections uh, that the New Testament makes and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament's story in all kinds of amazing ways. Another place we can look is that church history. How have certain Christians understood these passages over time? Now, some of the church fathers and our ancestors, they uh, may have gotten into some fanciful interpretations uh, of where Jesus was, but there are some certain connections that have been well-attested, I would say, throughout church history. And one of those well-attested connections to Jesus is in the passage that we read this morning. In Genesis 3.15, the church throughout history has often called this passage, this, this verse, the proto-evangelium. Proto, first, evangelium, gospel. This is the first gospel, the first proclamation of good news, the first foreshadowing of the Messiah who is to come, the first proclamation of hope in the Bible. You know, the first Star Wars movie was called The New Hope, right? 
This Genesis 3.15, this is the first hope. This is the first proclamation of hope. Because we aren't the first people to ever need hope, right? I mean, really all of humanity has needed, but God's people have really needed it over different seasons. Uh, we think about Israel when they were slaves in Egypt, suffering under oppression. It seemed as if God had totally forgotten about them, that he had not fulfilled his promises. How could they have hope while they were in Egypt? Or we think about when they were in exile, when they were in Babylon, far away from the promised land, it seems as if God had wanted nothing more to do with them. Is God going to fulfill his promises? How could they have hope in exile? And so God's people, they might have and probably did turn to our collective origin story as we're going to do today. They went back to the beginning to see how did we end up in this mess to begin with. And so we're going to look at that. Genesis opens, as you know, by God saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then in Genesis 3, suddenly there is a serpent who is said to be more cunning than all of the wild animals that God has created. It's like this dark, dark cloud is now hovering over God's paradise. So let's take a closer look at this serpent. Right away, we are given a clue that this serpent is evil because it immediately questions God's word. Chapter 3, verse 1, if you'd like to follow along. The serpent says, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, in this question, the serpent has already twisted God's word. He makes seem, God seem totally restrictive. In fact, God did not say you can't eat from any tree. He essentially said the opposite. You can eat from any tree, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so it seems the serpent is wanting God to seem like this restrictive ruler uh, and to take our eyes off all the good things that God has freely given us permission to enjoy. But Eve, she remembers God's prohibition. Verse 2, she says to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit, the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now, it seems that Eve has added this part about not touching the tree. Um, perhaps she wanted to be extra careful, we don't know. But she does essentially remember God's prohibition about the one tree in the garden. But then the serpent continues his attack. In verse 4, he says, No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent lies, but with a half-truth. Because they don't die right away. But they are cut off from the presence of God. They are kicked out of the garden, and so they are cut off from the access to the tree of life, and this began the process of death, which is still with us today. And so we know Adam and Eve did die, and the, ser and the serpent tempts them with greater knowledge and with the ability to be God, to determine for themselves what is good and evil. So in verse 6, Eve saw that the tree was good for food and desirable to look at. And we know what happens. She eats of the fruit she was not supposed to eat from. And she gives some to Adam, who, by the way, has been there with her this whole time. And their eyes are opened. 
And then later they hear God walking in the garden. And what do they do? They hide. They hide from God. And when God finds them and talks to them about this, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and sin has now ruined God's perfect garden. Human beings are hiding from God. They're blaming each other. They're at at enmity with each other. This division has been unleashed in the human realm between God and humanity and humans with one another. But it all started with that serpent. In verse verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat the dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What is this passage about? Well, you'll believe that there's a lot of debate about that in the commentaries. In fact, uh, some people, even some biblical scholars, will look at a text like this and just say, you know what, this is a, a, a fancy way of, of explaining why snakes crawl on their belly and why humans and snakes hate each other so much. I'm serious. Biblical scholars will, will say that as an explanation. But let's be, let's be real here. This is no garden variety snake. There is something sinister, something evil is happening. I mean, even ancient Near Eastern people, they lived in the same world we do. They knew that snakes just don't talk. Okay, there is something more going on here. And so Gordon Wenham says, certainly the oldest Jewish interpretation takes the serpent as symbolic of Satan and looks for a victory over him in the days of the King Messiah. Now, in this passage in Genesis, it does not reveal to us right away the identity of the serpent. It's a foreshadowing of more evil to come later in the story. But we live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. More has been revealed uh, in the New Testament. And so we know that this serpent is Satan, the enemy of God. And interestingly, this, the serpent is described as one of God's creations. And that's an important point because Christianity is not a dualistic religion. It's not as if there are two gods who are essentially equal in power battling each other. No, Christianity un- understands the evil in the world to be creatures uh, who have rebelled against God. That Satan was a fallen angel who has rebel- rebelled against God. And so the serpent has now tricked Eve into rebelling against God with him. But God is not going to allow this rebellion to go unchecked. So in verse 15, he says, I will put hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. God, said that, God says there, there will be this division between Satan and Eve, between the offspring of Satan and Eve. Or in other words, there's going to be an ongoing conflict in the world between evil and humanity. And this is a really critical point of this text. And it helps us see that all of the despair, friends, all of the horrible things that are going on in the world, all the things that we talked about that threaten to make us lose our hope, all of that comes from this story. It comes from the fact that we are separated from God and that we are involved in a spiritual conflict that goes all the way back to the beginning. All this evil comes from a demonic source. The world is all out of sorts. But even though this rebellion and this curse 
has brought about such a horrible situation. God does not leave humanity without hope, even right here in this passage. God says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. It's kind of an interesting passage. The offspring of Eve will strike the serpent's head and the serpent will strike the offspring's heel. How do we interpret this? For an ancient Israelite before Jesus, there is a future promise here. Scholar Victor Hamilton says, this promise is that some unspecified member or members of the human race will one day lash out against the serpent's seed. And more than a change in the serpent's position is involved here, it's now a question of his existence. So if there is some foreshadowing, there is a promise that somehow evil is going to be dealt a severe blow. Okay, that is what is going on here. But again, we can see more. On the other side of the cross and the resurrection, we are able to see that this offspring of the woman uh, struck, the Satan, struck Satan's head. And the New Testament helps us with this by identifying the serpent for us as Satan. Revelation 12.9 says, The great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. In fact, even Jesus made this connection. In Luke 10, he says to uh, his disciples, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. And so the early church, they knew that Jesus in the New Testament, they identified this serpent in Genesis 3 with Satan, the enemy of God. And once that connection is made, you can see, okay, well, what is going to happen to Satan? A descendant of Eve or the descent, an offspring of Eve is going to strike Satan's head. And you can see how the early church, they said, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. This descendant of Eve who comes to strike Satan's head. The serpent tried to strike Jesus by killing him on the cross. Yet Satan didn't know that as he struck at the heel of the seed of the woman, that his head would be struck in the process. Because on the cross, our sins were forgiven. We were justified. And Satan's power to accuse has been totally disarmed. And the curse of death that Satan has unleashed into the world, it's been overcome through the resurrection of Jesus. So Satan was defeated on the cross. So brothers and sisters, as, as you look at the evil in the world, know that it comes from a demonic source. It's not just the fact that people are bad, all that, although that we know that we're sinners, but there is a great evil in this world, destroying God's good creation. And there is a battle going on, but friends, we have hope. We have hope because Jesus, the offspring of the woman, has already defeated Satan through the cross and the resurrection. But then you might say, Nate, well, if Jesus has somehow defeated or struck a blow to Satan, then why is there still so much evil going on in the world? Well, that's why in Advent, we remember all of the promises that God fulfilled that were given in the Old Testament. But yet we anticipate the hopes yet to be fulfilled when the Messiah Jesus comes again. 
So Satan's head was struck, but he hasn't been ultimately defeated yet. But because Jesus fulfilled the many promises of God in the Old Testament scriptures, can we not trust that he will fulfill all the rest of his promises when Jesus comes again? When he finally defeats Satan, when he finally restores creation to paradise. And so friends, that gives us hope. Hope in the midst of the chaos. Hope in the midst of the battle that is going on around us. And there's another great New Testament allusion to this passage. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul concludes his letter to them in Romans 16, 20. He says, I rejoice over you. I want you to be wise about what is good, yet innocent about what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, Paul knows this is a spiritual battle. Be wise about good, what is good. Be, be innocent about what is evil. Yet keep hope alive. Keep hope alive because God will soon crush Satan under your feet. He will be defeated. This darkness will not last forever. So why does Paul say under your feet? Under the church's feet. You know, one of the scholarly debates about Genesis 3.15 is, you know, do we, are we to see one seed, the promised Messiah, uh, uh, who's the offspring of Eve, or is it the, the many descendants of Eve? And I would just say, why not both? Why not both here? Jesus, we know, has struck Satan's head, yet through his church, he is doing more battle. Jesus said he will build his church and the, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the gates are for defense. That means the church is on offense. So Jesus' people, they will be instruments of peace in a world of violence. They will be, where, where there is hatred, his people are going to sow love. Where there is injury, his people will bring pardon. Where there is doubt, they will bring faith. Where there is despair, his people will bring hope. Where there is darkness, his people will bring light. And where there is sadness, his people will bring joy. Amen? And one day, very soon, God will crush Satan under our feet. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more grief. For God will restore all things. And I know that many of you right now, you carry with you in your heart deep loss, deep grief. At the holidays, noticing a loved one is not there with you. There's a lot of pain in this world. The trials of a stressful year. And I just want to say to you today, hold on. Hold on to hope. Don't give up hope. Because in the end, God promised that his paradise will be restored. The serpent will be defeated. The curse, it will be lifted. The divisions of the world will be healed. Sicknesses will be gone. Creation itself will be renewed when Jesus comes again. And he will reign forever and ever and all shall be well. Oh friends, don't give up hope. It will be glorious no matter how bleak things look around you, hold on to the hope of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, this morning we give you thanks and praise for your promises fulfilled. 
for the Messiah who has come, for the offspring of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham, son of David. Lord, we thank you that, that he has come and he has struck Satan a blow so that he is defeated and that we can live in victory and peace and hope. And Lord, as we carry many pains and sorrows through all of the difficulties of this life and, and all of the darkness that is around us, I pray that you would give us an indestructible hope. 